Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Please consider supporting Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hey, this is Trevor from Halifax calling in to say that I support creative control on Patreon because I think long-form arts journalism is a crucial part of music culture and there's simply not enough of it out there today. Vish is a master interviewer, he lands great guests, and he has his finger on the pulse of the ever-changing music landscape both here in Canada and abroad. For all of these reasons and many more, I think you should support creative control on Patreon too. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol today. I'm Visha's wife, and I will love him no matter what you do. And now he has me on the record saying that. The Replacements was an American rock and roll band formed in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1979, originally featuring Paul Westerberg, Tommy Stinson, Chris Mars, and the late Bob Stinson. The Mats initially broke up in 1991 after releasing seven excellent albums, including 1987's Please to Meet Me. On October 9th, 2020, Rhino Records is reissuing Please to Meet Me as a three-CD, one-LP deluxe box set which tells the story of this significant album in ways not previously possible with more than 50% of the content previously unreleased. Bob Mayer is a music writer who first appeared on this show in 2016 to discuss his wonderful book, Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements, and he has written the compelling liner notes for this edition of Please to Meet Me. Jason Jones is an A&R man at Rhino Records, 
who specializes in overseeing deluxe box sets like the recent one for Funhouse by the Stooges and for those currently in circulation by The Replacements, one of his all-time favorite bands. I connected with Bob and Jason recently, and we had an extensive conversation about Please to Meet Me, the story behind its unique production, their take on the band and the 29 unreleased songs in this collection, what might be next for The Replacements and this archive series, future plans, and more. A part of the Entertainment One Network, with the support of listeners like you, who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control and Massey Hall's concert film series live at masseyhall.com, where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free, including performances by past podcast guests like The New Pornographers. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 569th episode of Creative Control, featuring massive replacements fans and experts, Bob Mayer and Jason Jones, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Jason. How's it going? It's going well, Vish. How are you? I'm well. It's nice to speak with you. Uh, first of all, where in the world are you? I am in Los Angeles, California right now. Ah, how are things going in Los Angeles, California as we're speaking? <laughs> it's a little warm uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're still, our, our AQI is still up and down a little bit. So um, uh, it's definitely been an uh, interesting uh, time. Uh, but everything's everything's well. You can't you can't complain in California uh, too much. Uh, you have uh, a high chance for a beautiful day just about every day. Well, I appreciate the climate update. What about the socio <laughs> socio political climate? Uh, that's kind of where I was sort of coming from. Uh, as we're okay. as we're speaking, uh, your leader uh, and his uh, wife have just been diagnosed with the COVID nineteen. Uh, virus and uh, I stayed up late watching your cable news networks to try and figure mm. that out. How is the? How are people feeling? Have you talked to anyone about this? What's going on? What's the feeling uh, about this? I have only seen reactions on social media, and uh, it's it's definitely been interesting. Yeah, because I've seen both sides of the spectrum. We live in weird times right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I feel like as we get closer to November, it's only going to get uh, weirder. Yes. Yes, yes, I agree. I, I, I do agree. All right. Well, it's nice to see and meet you. We'll get more information about who you are in just a moment, but I don't want to leave our other friend here uh, waiting too long. Bob, are you there? Can you hear us? I am, and I can hear you, Vish. How are you? I'm well. It's nice to see you again. Uh, we chatted uh, how many years ago now about your... Four, four and a half, I think, just about. Four and a half years. 2016. Yes, and that was about your excellent book about the replacements, uh, Trouble Boys. Uh is that still doing okay? Is that book doing well? It's uh, it's doing okay. I mean, it's not uh, Clive Cussler or uh, who is it, Stephen King, but uh, you know, it's 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 uh, you know, holding its own over the years. Uh, it's kind of interesting, just the the uh, story of the band, the legend of the band, sort of continues to build, uh, and and you know, which is a good thing for me and and for them. So, I meant to message you, and I'm sure many people did, because I was watching probably MSNBC or something. And I, Beto O'Rourke was on there uh, on the mm. TV, and 
Everyone, uh, you guys didn't really do it, but everyone, when they do these virtual things, they put their bookshelves behind them. I've noticed that. It's a, oh, there you go. There's your books. I see your books. I see your books, but it seems very point like, hey, I've got books. I know what I'm talking about. I read something in these books. So I noticed that on Beto's very full bookshelf, your book. Did you, did you hear about this? I didn't know about that. I've had actually a few politicians, you know, uh, very somewhat famously in 2016 when, Tim Kaine was on the Democratic ticket as vice president. He not only had read my book, but talked it up in a couple of interviews with the local people in Minneapolis and with Rolling Stone. So I knew he was a fan and he's actually uh, done some sort of uh, appearances with uh, former replacements members. But uh, but yeah, I do have to admit that I now in, in the in the age of covid where you do see all the bookshelves uh bookshelf, uh, the bookshelf porn behind people during <laughs> interviews and stuff, I am I am constantly I am constantly looking for 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 my book, which is sort of easy to identify. And I've seen a couple a couple political pundits on our, our our news shows with it, but I didn't know Beto had it. But I, but I, that doesn't surprise me about Beto, since he's a kind of uh, you know punk post punk guy. That's what he 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 uh, yeah he kind of presents himself as such. Has talked about Ian Mackay and Discord Records. So yeah, no, it it makes sense. What do you suppose it is? Since we're here gathered here today to talk about the replacements again. Uh, I will uh, identify your roles in this Please to Meet Me reissue in a moment. But what is it about the replacements and politicians, rebellious politicians maybe? Why does this band and their story perhaps resonate with these types of people there, Bob? It's funny you say that because I've actually found that, yeah, there's some politicians, but it's more actually comedians. A really incredible number of comedians have responded or people in the comedy world, you know, from the guys and the kids in the hall to uh, Bob Odenkirk, to I know uh, Bill Hader and Fred Armisen have read the book, people like that. So, I, and I think there is a kind of anarchic sort of comedy troupe spirit about the replacements. You know, as much as they played music, their sort of presentation there certainly was a heavy dose of comedy. So, I do think I do think there's a there's a comedic uh, thing. I think with the politicians, it's probably more a generational thing. People who are now able to run for office are probably a, you know 45 and up. Uh, particularly if they're from the Midwest, uh, as a lot of our, you know, politicians are, our national politicians have been uh, recently. I think there's just, you know, they were in college or in high school and in college when the replacements were going strong. So it seems to me that they were, you know, part of that, the replacements college audience, which they had a, you know, pretty hefty, uh, sizable audience there. So I, I don't know if that's so much uh, uh, politicians being attracted to the band as much as it is they sort of grew up listening to them. But I do think there are sort of segments of the populations, as I mentioned, comedians uh, being one of them that really seem to uh, gravitate to the to the replacements kind of uh, style of anarchy. Well, comedians, the ones you cited in particular, there's a perfect storm of talent, insecurity, uh, emotional scarring, self-sabotage, rebelliousness, you know, anti-authority. Who better exemplifies that? Than the replacements or the kids. Right. The I think, <laughs> right. Well, I think there's something about, you know, and comedy troops uh, in particular, you know, who understand the dynamics of a rock and roll band. Um, and, and again, all those other things you said, you know, I think stand up comedians and comedians, uh, sketch comedians, maybe more than than other sort of people in other segments of show business, they do have much more of that kind of chip on their shoulder, uh, anti-authoritarian thing that's sort of part and parcel with what they do. Yeah. So uh, that all makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to talk to you again. And here we are again, four and a half years later, uh, here to talk about the replacements. So I think you and I need other topics. I think we need other things <laughs> yeah. to talk about. Uh, I think that would be good just for our relationship. So- 
Someday soon, yes, hopefully. (laughs) I hope so. Now let's go back to Jason. Uh, As I say, we're here to talk about uh, the Please to Meet Me reissue. Jason, uh, I guess very simply, what is your job? (laughs) Where do you work and what do you do, first of all? Okay, right on. Uh, I am uh, director of A&R for Rhino Rhino Entertainment, uh, which is the catalog arm of Warner Music Group. Uh, so this would be inclusive of all of the labels that fall within the Warner Music Group umbrella. That's Warner, Atlantic, Elektra, uh, and via Warner, Sire. So this is, uh, I have the good fortune of being able to uh, dig into the history and uh, material uh, from records in our archives and um artists and records that we control on my very first day uh at rhino i had the pleasure of uh, being assigned the what eventually became the dead man's pop uh box set that came out last year via rhino Mm -hmm. and shortly thereafter i think it was a day or two or maybe it was my first day i actually met bob on my very first day which for me i've been a replacements fan since i was 12 years old yeah. or so yeah um so it really is a dream come true be able to work with bob and work on the the catalog of for me one of the one of the bands that means the most to me um in addition to the replacements i've also produced uh reissues for the stooges i just put together a Funhouse 50th anniversary edition huge box yeah, set. Yeah, con- congrats oh. on that. And I don't know if yeah. there's any left. I had it in my cart, and then I got some bills, and I was like, <laughs> I might have to yeah, hold I, up on that. Uh, but yeah, yeah, there's that we that we sold out of it's that. It's gone. One, yeah, I should have probably. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just check. But yeah, yeah, congrats. It looked very comprehensive. I want to ask you about the replacements in a moment, but your your I guess affinity for the historical. Uh, I think that's yeah. relevant today to today's conversation. Uh, as a music fan, um, what is it about presenting the history and in a lot of cases, warts and all, comprehensive history of a band or a record they made? Why does that appeal to you? Why is that of interest to you? And 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 why? Yeah, like you probably could do anything you want. You're digging into the past a lot. Why is that? Uh, well, initially, I was drawn to catalog from a very young age, mainly because of my disdain for modern music. <laughs> uh, Wait, what, what era are we talking about here? What era was we're talking about? We're talking about early nineties. Okay. I mean, I I was you know exposed to punk rock at a very young age. Uh, never mind the Bogs, there's the Sex Pistols when I was eleven years old. You can see, you know, my class photo the year before I heard that record and the year afterwards. You can see the, the change in my eyes uh, <laughs> from what that record did to me. Um, oh, well, punk. So I think I think it's a, re- uh, yeah, it's a revelation. It does open your eyes, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And I had the good fortune of growing up in kind of the, the burgeoning age of reissue culture via labels like Ryko Disc and Rhino, mm. and uh, a few others that, you know, really kind of took stock of what the history of music looked like and what could be expanded upon. Mm. 
Um, so that's kind of, you know, from a very young age, I was, I was exposed to, you know, deluxe editions of classic albums. And that's just always been in my DNA. And that's always been something that I've always been drawn to. I like the storytelling around it. I like the very th- the thoroughness of it. And I really like to understand where an artist is coming from creatively in a very specific period of time. Yeah. You know, those, those are the things that I really enjoy. Like, I love knowing that, okay, you know, the birds recorded, uh, you know, this song on this day in the lead up to this album. Maybe it didn't make the album, but it helped inform a creative decision that ultimately ended up landing on a specific album. Yeah. That kind of, you know, reverse engineering kind of and storytelling is something that has always appealed to me. There's a CD reissue of Tim by The Replacements that I found really revelatory that came out probably 10, 15 years ago now or something like that. And, 2008, I think. Oh, is it? Yeah. So, they, well, you would yeah. know. You should know, God yeah. damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, I wrote the liner notes for that. So, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Bob, you two are a, a huge uh, fan of The Replacements. We talked about, obviously, uh, you're an authority on it. Uh, we talked about this the last time you were on. And, uh, so what does it mean to you to have access to all of this history, to, to get sort of firsthand, you know, to be actually touch and feel these things that no one else really has had been able to? What does that feel like? Well, it's, a, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, a lot of this for me is now growth of researching the book, which I did for, you know, almost seven, eight, nine years from start to finish. And part of part of what I was doing, I, I was one of the first people doing it for the first time, really digging into not just the kind of history of the band, but the sort of tactile stuff, you know, records and uh, uh, data and receipts and all this stuff that, that the sort of the band band and its management had. And then going further into the actual catalog, listening to uh, things that, you know, hadn't been heard or listened to, or in some cases found, you know, some I found a few things. And so for me, it's just kind of, you know, it's a little bit like peeling an onion and it just, there's more layers, uh, more and more layers. You think, okay, we've reached a kind of logical end point. But I think the, what keeps it interesting for me is the replacement, certainly for uh, most of their career, made no two albums that were really alike. And even if you go into the latter half of their career, no two album sort of situations, either the lineup or the circumstances of their recording are, are similar. And in many cases, they're they're very much about where the band was at in that moment. So you know, they weren't a band that was just turning out, turning out the same record over and over again in the same studio or whatever. I mean, there's, there is a story with each record and given the personalities and sort of combustible nature of the group, there's usually a very entertaining and kind of explosive story behind each record. And I think what um, I wanted to do as a kind of historian and a biographer coming out of the release of the book in 2016 was dig a little further and let fans, you know, people who love this music as well, kind of have the privilege of hearing and seeing what I've seen and knowing a little bit more uh, about this band and their creative process, because they weren't a band really that sort of revealed that stuff too much in their lifetime. And even to the sort of uh, first wave of reissues and, and the replacements from compared to most bands of their stature are very underrepresented until recently in terms of, you know, kind of digging through the archives and catalogs. So we're just kind of doing something that, 
that finally is, is the moment is ripe to do, I suppose. And that's dig into these classic records like Please to Meet Me or dig into the archives that Warner Brothers has and and show the, the the sort of creation stories and and the personal stories and also ultimately the kind of uh, the history that some people are aware of and some people haven't heard before. Yeah. So you have already done extensive research on the Please to Meet Me sessions for uh, your book, Bob, and these liner notes that you've written are fantastic. Uh, how much of these liner notes are drawn uh, from that research and, and how much of it is fresh and new stuff that you didn't know when you were working on the book? A good bit of it is fresh. I mean, one of the things that this this you know this set has, which is a three disc, one LP set that has fifty five tracks, and there's twenty nine tracks that haven't been on there before. Uh, one of the major components was the demo session that they the band did in 1986. And really, what this what this project, I think, the story behind this record is the transformation of the replacements at kind of the midpoint of their career. Uh, they had been together about seven years. They had put it up, signed to Sire in 1985, put out Tim uh, that fall. And the band was sort of in a state of flux with Bob Stinson, the co-founder and lead guitarist, sort of on his way out of the band. And really that came to a head in the sort of first stirrings of this record of making Please to Meet Me. They did a demo session in, in the summer of 1986, for which Bob was part of the first day or two and then sort of departed, which that event sort of subsequently resulted in him splitting from the group permanently and the replacements moving on and making the record as a three piece. In between that, they very much considered breaking up, you know, with Bob leaving and Paul was going to quit and then the band was going to break up. And even the start of, of this record that they made in Memphis uh, in the fall of 86 and early 87 with producer Jim Dickinson was really a kind of a referendum on the band. Would the band even be able to survive and, and continue? And so you talk about kind of the built-in storytelling aspect of, of a box set. And we really have it with this one where you see the sort of transformation of the band you know, at the end of a seven year run with Bob Stinson that goes into this sort of unknown period that tracks the record as a three piece and then comes out the other side of it at the end, just after the recording with a new member in Slim Dunlap uh, who replaced Bob. And that's kind of the next five years of the replacement story. And it's yeah. all sort of contained in this four or five month period in the making of this record. Yeah, no, it's it is remarkable. Um, Jason, what I mean, we've talked a little bit now about what, what Bob articulated in terms of telling mm -hmm. the story of this record. What do these tracks tell us about the story of this record? The, Bob mentioned there's 55 songs uh, spread over yeah. these discs here. What for you are the revel revelatory moments in terms of digging through the demos and, and, and other stuff? To me, the, the revelation, the kind of eureka moment, was the discovery of the second batch of demos. That was a truly impactful moment because, you know, as a student of reissue culture and just as a general music fan, listening to the 2008 reissue of Please to Meet Me that had a few of the demos, uh, I, you know, I knew that those were recorded with Bob Stinson. What I didn't realize and what, what Bob and I both didn't realize was that we actually had the full run of demos. So we had, you know, the initial batch that they recorded with Bob and, you know, the final recordings of the original lineup. And then they took a break for a few days and then came back. And to me, when they came back with, you know, a really, really, really strong set of material and songs that to be demoed, impactful songs that 
eventually made their way to please meet me. Like that showed me that, you know, this band is a really strong collective and a collective mindset. And the, in the face of having to, you know, leave one of your brothers behind literally to come with such fury and force creatively was, was a revelation to me. And also the discovery of the full uh, initial rough mix of the record that had some additional takes, um, additional, you know, original mixes, the originally intended track listing, you know, that, that like those kinds of discoveries are what make a package like this most interesting yeah. to me. Because yeah. I have to come at it from, you know, a job perspective, but also I always put myself in the seat of what would a fan want here? And to me, this is like, oh man, <laughs> who knew that there was this much material? Because, you know, we had kind of inklings of stuff that it you know, dribbled out before on the all for nothing comp and on the please to meet me, uh, deluxe, uh, the expanded edition. Yeah. Yeah. But to be able to really, you know, create a three disc immersion into this one record is something that, you know, I didn't know if it was going to be possible, but we were able to pull it off and it sounds awesome. It does. (laughs) It absolutely does. I want to just go back to what you were saying about dribbling out because uh reissue culture often butts heads against uh, bootleg culture uh what mm-hmm. what percentage of the material on this uh new reissue has circulated in some form or another i know that in the liners uh bob bob mayor by the way we should distinguish between bob stinson and bob mayor whenever we can for those who may not know uh <laughs> sure. bob, bob yeah. mayor suggests mm-hmm. that a few of the songs that ended up on uh, pleased to meet me were uh, part of some live sets that the replacements played, I think, in Europe. Um, so some of these songs have and demos probably have circulated before, or no? Are you feeling like no? We've this is the it's Ark of the pretty, Covenant. It's there, a pretty there's small a few, percentage. Yeah, yeah it's a yeah. small percentage overall, I yeah. would say, okay. because you know there were some sets that included some of this material that leaked out that are you know. From the torrent days, uh, I had I had discovered previously, but like live um, live performances of them. No, oh. no, no. Some of some of a handful of the demos had squeaked had. How does that? Out how do you think that happens? Because I understand sometimes when like an independent, you know, demos get circulated somehow. It's, sometimes it's just grassroots. That's the way it happens. The replacement stuff has got to be under like a, a vault with like a guard dog. Well. Not not at the time, you know. I think it's funny you mentioned yeah. that because one of uh, one of the replacements in Paul Westbrook's pet peeves was at the time was kind of bootlegging of things, and it sort of started with this record uh, where there were some outtakes of uh, the actual sessions at Arden. In those days, it was pretty easy. It's like somebody would make cassette dubs for the band to listen to or whatever, and then they share it with a friend or somebody gets it. Which is usually by the time you hear it on a bootleg, it's you know five generations of hiss yeah. tape hiss on it. But I mean, we were lucky in, in, in that most of this stuff, particularly the demos, there was three reels of demos, you know, representing almost a week's, you know, three, four days of work. Um, some of that had been found, an extra reel we came up with, we found there was yeah. one, one of the songs was like a, only existed in a cassette form that, uh, you know, that somebody had dubbed to adapt. So which we managed to clean up and, you know, uh, and then there, the stuff that, has been bootlegged, you know, as I say, fifth generation hiss has been cleaned up and, you know, in some cases remixed 
or uh, just redone beautifully. So I would say of that, I mean, it's like 80% of this stuff nobody's heard and certainly yeah. never, and 100% of it never in this clarity. And then, you know, one of the other big strains, and you may mention it later, is in terms of talking about the stakes creatively for the band, one of the things that comes out in this record is that Tommy Stinson, who is the bass player and co-founder of the band, uh, was writing and recording a lot of songs at this time. And all, only one or two of those have ever been heard or known about. And we found many of them, some not completed, but we put four of those songs on here. So those are things that nobody's ever heard. Nobody's been bootlegged. Uh, yeah. And so I think it's just, when you talk about kind of an alternate history of what might've been or what they were doing, it just gives you a completely different understanding to know that there are, you know, four or five really great Tommy Stinson songs from that Please to Meet Me era recorded at Arden some and some at Blackberry Way in, in Minneapolis. So I think, you know, the, the, the story, uh, you know, of, of a project like this is you go into it knowing a certain amount and then some of it is is doing the legwork and digging and and really pushing and i and jason and i both sort of push people many times to find things or just check one more time or bug the guy at the archive to look in this place and so i think you know to to really get to the point that we are with this uh to to have it be as kind of special as it is with as much new material previously unheard material um you know it's 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 a matter of just kind of putting the labor and and also just being lucky enough now that the archive at Warner Brothers, I think is in a much better shape and, and all the sort of materials are much more accessible and, you know, kind mm-hmm. of with modern search methods. So we can kind of locate this reel and this storage facility in this state, you know. And also, I just want to point out that this was created in the early days of the pandemic. Like this was totally created in kind of like a, a solitude kind of mindset oh, where oh, oh, this we set, had to be. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we so we kind of had to be reliant on social distancing and, you know, the the hoops and hurdles to jump through to make sure that everyone's safe, but also we want people we need we need certain like tapes in order to help inform a project like this. So it was it was a definitely it was it was a whirlwind ride. I'm trying to put it together. So lucky you found it. I mean, as Bob was talking, I was thinking of that horrible warehouse fire uh, right. at Universal. Oh, yeah. All the things that were lost, I assume, stuff that you might have wanted. Not Maybe not for this project, but I'm sure. Jason, were you, was your company, was your, was your. No, bu- no, that no? was, okay. that was, that was purely Universal. Okay. Yeah. You're not under that umbrella. Okay. Universal no, sounds, not, uh, just by its very name, Universal sounds like it controls everything. It's very universal. <laughs> you would think it has all the stuff. So, yeah. Well, just, they've, they've, uh, they've acquired a, uh, a lot of companies yeah, over the years. That's, that's, so. They name themselves well. Uh, Bob, you were talking about uh, Tommy and his role. And one of the things uh, that I learned uh, here, or maybe I read about it in your book and I can't remember. It's been five years. Give me a break. He wrote a song called Even If It's Cheap, and the opening line of the of the song is Pleased to Meet Me, which is, again, uh, uh, conjured at a awesome record schmooze fest where Tommy is, like, meeting people and saying, pleased to meet me, the pleasure is all yours. I just think that's amazing. Like, he was really... It must have been very difficult for Tommy at this point. He had to let his brother go uh, from right. this band, which he says... Uh, you quote him as saying certain family members would never forgive him for that. And it's obviously a very sad uh, thing now that uh, Bob is gone. But however, this seems to have emboldened him in that point. He really came into his own. Yeah, he was a you know 19 going on 20 and had been a veteran of the band for seven years. You know, he started basically playing at 12, 13 
Uh, and so he was, you know, with his brother, who was this kind of force of nature and, and you know, massive personality in the band and, and creative force in his own way, sort of out there was room, I think, in a sense, or a, a need, a hole uh, that needed to be filled. And Tommy really stepped up in that, both in terms of the things he was recording and kind of really just getting his first footing as a songwriter. But they burst, the, the tracks on here burst with so much energy and they just have a really incredible, it's like, you know, hearing somebody discover their own talent. Uh, and, 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 you know, just, and an, he's such a musical guy in addition to playing bass, you know, he's playing guitar on all this stuff and he even plays drums, not on this stuff, but he's a drummer as well. So, you know, you're hearing the flowering of somebody who's just a natural musical talent, but then also I think, and, and Jim Dickinson, the producer of the album talks about it. Tommy had a, a great bearing on the direction that the actual album sessions took, you know, uh, again, this was a band that was at loose ends working as a trio for the first time, sort of unmoored and Dickinson, I think, you know, was the perfect producer for them at the time in terms of sort of giving them what they need, whether it was distracting them or cajoling them or coddling them or, or, you know, whatever to get the record out of them. But whenever Jim would say that he was at a loss for what to do, he would sort of look to Tommy and let Tommy's instincts sort of guide the record and guide the process. And so I think, yes, this is a, uh, you know, in as much as all records are, you know, most of the replacements records are very much Paul, Paul Westerberg centric because he's the principal writer and, and, and singer. I think you start to see much more of a Paul Tommy dynamic uh, in this record and in this band. And I think a lot of that also has to do with the way Dickinson treated the rhythm tracks and, and the sort of force and tightness of the band playing really for the first time as a power trio rather than as a quartet. So, you know, uh, I think one of the engineers is quoted as saying a record is like a, is like a pie. If there's four members, you know, you cut it up into four pieces. When there's three members, there's, there's more for everyone. And I think both Tommy and Chris Mars to a great extent really stepped up on this record. And again, it's one, another one of the sort of subplots, uh, if you will, of, 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 of the making of this album. Is it wrong for me to say that my new favorite song maybe of all time is all he wants to do is fish. I <laughs> very pleased. It's an awesome song. It's an awesome, awesome song, awesome song and it's uh, all the versions here are great, and I, I love it. I, I really do. I'm being sincere, and that's that's a Chris song, right? Yeah, it's yep. a Chris song, and it had it been released, I believe, as a camera if it came out as a B-side or one of the rarities, but we have a demo version on here yeah. that we didn't even know existed. And, uh, yeah, again, I think the, the environment, maybe there was just a little bit more freedom or looseness or desperation or whatever it was. And, and between the demo session and the sessions at Arden, which really were, uh, even though they worked hard, there was a lot of playing going on too. And a lot of uh, exchange with the Arden people with Dickinson and his engineers who were all musicians that I think it brought out different things in the band and allowed for different things to come out. Hence you have songs by Chris, you have songs by Tommy, uh, you have the band trying different, you know, doing all these covers in the middle of a session, you know, in one of the demos, even in the demo session where they had enough free time now to kind of play with things, they do a, a almost a kind of Calypso version of, of the song, you know, so yeah, I in. think, yeah. yeah, kick it in. I think yeah. the replacements were, you know, m- for the first half of their career, they were making, you know, records pretty quickly in a kind of punk rock, post-punk, punk, indie rock, indie label environment. And, you know, they sort of, gradually once they got to the major labels became more and more enamored and involved with the process of record making not that they were ever comfortable with it but i think after tim for which there isn't a lot of additional material and they didn't do a ton of recording the next you know couple records next three records uh in in terms of please to meet me and then also uh don't tell a soul 
you know, there's a ton of recording and a ton of different approaches to the studio and, and all that stuff. So it's interesting to see them become a kind of band that uses the studio in a way that they don't for the first half of their career. Yeah. And it's also the fact that Sire was willing to invest in them as well and mm-hmm. give them the time right. as well. Right. You know, because, I mean, Seymour Stein, uh, founder of Sire Records, you know, he loved that band. And, you know, he really, he gave them the opportunity to be as creative as possible, you know, and you can really see that on Please Meet Me, and you can definitely see that on uh, Don't Tell Us All, when there was, you know, essentially two two passes at recording that record. Right. I, I get a, I'm getting the hint that maybe there's another reissue coming, but I'm going to leave that alone for now. <laughs> uh, Jason, I just want to follow up on a couple of things. First of all, Seymour Stein seems to have wonderful taste, and uh, <laughs> and he, oh, seems, yeah. he seems to get behind uh, really good stuff, or he seemed to, I mm-hmm. should say. Uh, Bob invoked uh, the late uh, uh, Jim Dickinson, who produced this record, and uh, there's some great stories and quotes from uh, Jim. Uh, Bob, you must have spoke to Jim uh, for your book, I'm gathering, yes? Yes, I did, although he passed not long uh, after I really sort of started the project. But I knew Jim living in Memphis, Tennessee, as I do. And Jim is a native of the area. Uh, you know, I, I had a lot of there's a lot of materials beyond my conversations with him. So I got a really pretty fully informed picture and managed to talk to two of the who are some of the greatest engineers ever in John Hampton and Joe Hardy, who worked on this record, who were staffers at the time at Arden, who've since passed, uh, as have so many of the other kind yeah. of uh session players on this record, but it was really interesting, you know, just to see the the kind of union. The, uh, this is the first time the replacements had worked outside of their hometown. And really, even though Tommy Ramone had produced their previous record, Tim, they'd done it with their longtime engineer, Steve Felsett. So this is the first time they were kind of literally fish out of water in the South recording yeah. with a very high, high level studio professionals, but who were also kind of on their level sort of philosophically and, and, and attitudinally and musically in terms of Jim Dickinson and, and the crew at Arden. So I think it was, you know, again, that's another sort of subplot of the story is seeing the sort of mixing and mingling of the replacements, these sort of Northern Yankees as, as the, as the Southerners would refer to them. Uh, and, and these, and these, and these musicians down in Memphis and the whole atmosphere, which I think sort of informed the process as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Jason, so, uh, there's this, there's some great quotes and stories, uh, about Jim and one of my favorites from Bob's liner notes, uh, here are, this is a quote from Jim Dickinson. If it isn't true, it ought to be, uh, which I, <laughs> I just thought was very funny. Uh, what do you make of the sound Jason, I want to go to you. What do you make of the sound of Please to Meet Me? Because as is revealed in these liner notes and I guess in the in the lore of this album, it is a highly produced affair. It is uh, one of uh, probably was the band's, I guess, first experience with digital recording uh, on some level. And Jim, as much as he was like old school, was totally adopting the copy and paste uh, aspects of digital recording. The record has a very particular sound. Uh, how what do you how would you characterize it, Jason, compared to what they had done before, and maybe even what was to come? I mean, it's it's a, it's a very clean recording, but it's still super loose. You can't shake the looseness out of out of the replacements. It's something where you know I look at Jim Dickinson as being like you know he's like a a Southern Trevor Horn at the time. He's got his sampler, you know. Yeah. He's like he's playing around, like yeah. he, and he's totally immersed in audiophile world and really taking a place like Arden and getting it up to the standard of 
some of the you know leading recording studios at the time back in 86 yeah so i think that it is you know i've i always think that this is this is the mats you know it's it's their it's their exile because it's all over the place. It's our exile on Main Street. It's you all a, over the place. You connect him to a guy who's connected to the Stones, Jim Dickinson, and interestingly. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And also, I think it's something where in Arden, you know, you have Dickinson, who has Stones connection. You also have Third Sister Lovers by Big Star that was recorded there. You know, there's, there's a lot of mythology that they're kind of staring at hmm. when they're in this location. So for them to rise to the challenge with you know a record that you know in matt circles is you know definitely in your top three yeah of favorite matt's records i think it's you know sometimes it's number one number two number three depending upon the day <laughs> uh it is it's he he really knew how to get the best out of them and create an environment where they could feel comfortable enough to do that absolutely you know because like like bob said it's something where they are fish out of water to me it's something where you know this is also a story about them being fish out of water you know northerners coming down to memphis and like yeah with attitudes though too there's the story of uh chris drawing uh is it jed clampett on his suitcase like to make fun of the south yeah they they had they they brought their attitudes they've chased producers and record executives you know, in every city there, every environment they're in, they have no reverence for everyone. I find it striking, to your points, both of you, that they got along so well with Jim. Because, um, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Jason, but it, it occurs to me that, no. Bob, I actually wonder about this from your perspective. Um, because like a lot of producers, uh, Jim had to play psychologist with the replacements. And I find that really interesting. He got them. He got when to leave them alone, and he got when to push them in a way that seemed like he was leaving them alone. Is that fair? Yeah, Jim's background, I mean, he, as he says in the notes, uh, or one of the engineers says, Jim always said he liked the psychodrama of recording more than he was interested in any technical aspects. That's why Jim very rarely was not a, he wasn't coming from an engineer background per se. That's why he always had great engineers on staff. I mean, he was coming much more from a, a kind of philosophical background. I mean, I think he says in the in the notes, you know, He's trying to capture your soul on tape. May, that may not be the artist's intention, but that's his intention. And Jim came from a background of, uh, you know, he was very much from the Sam Phillips school. I mean, he was a student of Sam Phillips. Uh, and, and, and in a way, Sam was very much about sort of pulling something out of the artist that the artist didn't even know they had in them. Um, and Jim's background was that of, you know, he had been a drama student in college Uh, And then his stated intention before he really got into music was to be a history teacher. And you almost see that playing out because he always had a flair for the theatrical or the the psychology of the theater and knew how to deal with his charges in that way. But he was also imparting things uh, to to the band. And Paul would say, you know, he would tell us stories about a million and one people from Elvis to Otis Redding, and it would almost distract us. And so he was he was using his tools as a dramatist and as a teacher to sort of either put them at ease or put them in a position where they had to make a decision or whatever it was, but he was doing all that with a purpose to kind of get what he wanted out of them. And, and the environment certainly sort of added to that. And, and as, as, as the sessions wore on, Jim would bring in people to kind of fill the, 
fill the sort of texture, add textures and fill the hole from Bob not being there. You know, there's horns on this record, there's strings on this record. Um, there's all kinds, you know, there's piano and organ that Jim's playing on this record that, you know, didn't exist in the sort of replacements universe before. But Jim was very calculated and, and, and smart about how he introduced anything he wanted to do. And, and also, I think he knew, having worked with the Stones at their most decadent, having worked with Alex Chilton at his most rebellious, he knew how to handle difficult personalities. And so, you know, as you mentioned, they had gone through a list of would-be and potential producers, some of the replacements rejected and some who they, you know, didn't want to work with the replacements. And Jim, I really do believe was not only the perfect person for this time, but really maybe the perfect person for the replacements, you know, in, in this moment to, to get them to make the record they needed to, when they were kind of, um, again, as I say, they were, they were a, a three-legged table at this point, you know, they had yet to quite figure out what, their new form was going to be. And so did Jim kind of propped them up for much of this recording and, 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 and got, I think in a way, you know, you can argue that they have records that are better, but I don't think they have a more sustained uh, record in terms of a performance and in terms of what they're delivering than this record. I, I, I mean, that's arguable. I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not going to say that. You can, you, you can say that, but uh I do wonder, you, we've talked a little bit about the psychology. We've talked about how the band was in uh, in a transitional state. I think those of us who follow Paul Westerberg's writing, uh, you get the sense that he's telling stories that are based on real life. But I was kind of uh, really astonished by how much anecdotal stuff there is on this record. Uh, just fragments of conversations. I alluded to... Uh, uh, Tommy saying, please to meet me in his own song, but then saying it in real life. And then that even the handshake, the stilted right. handshake uh, with these corporate, you know, people took on new meaning for the, yeah, please to meet me. That's the title. Uh, absolutely. Now let's recreate that whole moment. Like all of that's very right. fascinating to me and funny and irreverent. Even Alex Chilton, like the chorus is so funny now that I'm not going to spoil too much. People need to read all this stuff, but it's very funny. However, it's also very dark. Like, this is some of Paul's darkest writing. How is all of this psychological stuff that we've kind of alluded to, in your estimation, Bob, how is it fed into Paul's writing on this record? Um, this, the songs, the, there's at least one song, never mind, that seems to be directly addressing Bob Stinson. There's a lot right. going on for the band at this point. How would you characterize his, his mindset at the time? Uh, well, I'd hate to ever try and characterize Paul's <laughs> mindset, but it is it is true. I think, um, you know, so much of what he wrote about uh, for the most part, you know, and let it on, on Tim. There's a couple of examples of sort of sort of songs inspired by a short story by Flannery O'Connor or by, uh, uh, you know, different playwrights, you know, something like Little Mascara, he said. But I think for the most part and as a rule, Paul's songwriting was very much informed by his own world. And for him at this point, the band was his world, you know, and had been for a number of years. So, you you know, you have a lot of songs and they've been signed and had gone through the first sort of stages of becoming a major label band and part of a corporate machine for better or worse. And I think a lot of these songs are about that, you know, and they split with their manager and original benefactor, Peter Jesperson. And I think he would, if you listen to this record, just in terms of, you know, uh, I don't know, is kind of, he refers to as the state of the Matt's address, you know, it's like, it really is the, the sort of call and response of, you know, here, we're in trouble for this, our lawyers on the phone, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Think what I are we going to do now? I don't right? know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And there's even, you know, should we pack it up? You know, it's, I think it really was addressing whether they were going to sort of stay around Around as a band yeah, um, yeah. and things like IOU. And then he goes back certainly uh, on things like the ledge, 
uh, which yeah. I think recalls, you know, at the time, you know, teen suicide clusters were very sort of prominent, but I think this goes even further back based on a kind of personal experience for him, yeah. but also just being able to sort of put himself back in that. And then in a weird way, being in Memphis, um, I think made them, and they tended to be fairly homesick characters easily. You know, that's why they didn't really tour Europe that much or tour around the world is because they generally like to be in the States and, and particularly at home. Uh, but things like, um, Skyway, which yeah. is very much a Minnesota song, was yeah. was written and completed in Memphis. And I think in a different circumstance, maybe he wouldn't have put that on. Even Can't Hardly Wait, which had existed in various forms for a number of years, the lyric was really rewritten and finished in Memphis and was, you know, the crack in the drapes that he refers to is the hotel uh, drapes that they were staying in Midtown Memphis. So I think, you know, environment you know, Paul says, oh, well, you know, I was recording in a closet. I could have been in Timbuktu or I could have been in Memphis. But being away from home uh, and being in Memphis ultimately, I think, did have an, have an impact on not only what songs he was writing, but what songs he was leaving on. And, you know, there's a lot of great stuff that maybe would have even added to that feeling that was left off. I mean, things that are on this record for the first time or on this box up for the first time, like uh, Run for the Country and Learn How to Fail. These are sort of ballad heavier stuff or slower songs that I think... Paul was probably hesitant to put on in the wake of Bob's departure. You know, they didn't want to seem like they were going too soft, kicking out the wild rock and roll guitarist. And so I think certain decisions were made. And also that might've been Dickinson too, at the time, just trying to make a leaner record. Cause at one point they talked about doing a double, but I think now when you listen to this box set and you can hear everything that's in there, I think you get a much more uh, total picture of, uh, you know, Paul's world and the band's world at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I do appreciate all of this context for uh, that time and place uh, and the liner notes are, are truly wonderful. Um, Jason, let's try to sell this thing. Let, <laughs> let's tell people uh, more about uh, <laughs> what is the, the, the various sets. Uh, Cause I think you can buy this in sort of different forms, right? What, 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 yeah. What? Yeah. On, on, on rhino, rhino.com. Yeah. Uh, there are some exclusive bundles yeah. uh, that uh, basically we have three, different bundles uh there's uh you get the box set itself which is again it's 180 gram lp inclusive of the uh rough mix of the album that has a totally different track listing uh and uh, some alternate takes included uh plus you have three cds included in the package first disc is the album remastered by the great justin perkins Mm -hmm. who handled all the mastering on dead man's pop uh, plus all the assorted B-sides and um, promo-only mixes uh, that were released around the time. There's a Jimmy Iovine mix of Can't Hardly Wait. Yeah, I saw that. That's, yeah. never, really, that's yeah. never really been widely distributed. So yeah. we wanted to you know, fully kind of contextualize the officially released stuff uh, from the time period on disc one. What was disc the, two may, is, may I interrupt, no, interrupt just for a moment? Yeah. What was the context? Uh, maybe it's a Bob question. I don't know, but Jason, I'm sure you know too. What was the yeah. context to have Jimmy Iovine uh, mix, do a mix of that song? How did that come about? Radio, radio campaign for oh, Can't Really Wait. I see. Okay. And Jimmy worked yeah. for who at the time? He was just an independent uh, yeah. uh, producer and remixer at that time oh, okay. before he became a, media yep. mogul but i think the replacements <laughs> management the replacements management wanted to see you know if they could sort of get a slightly different radio mix you know mm-hmm. at that time that was very much yeah. kind of uh, in vogue thing to do was to remix a song for radio you can't really it's not that much different but i think in a weird way it would set up 
what they did with the next record, yeah. which they handed off to the entire thing to a professional mixer and don't tell a soul. But anyway, uh, sorry, sorry, and, Jason, I interrupted. No, no, no. no, no. no. I, and I, and I part of it. that is kind of, you know, this series of reissues, you know, we're trying to tell a larger story. And I wanted to include that because it does help inform some of the decisions that were made for Don't Tell a Soul. Right, right. And eventually kind of help inform the kind of revisionist version that we put out as Dead Man's Pop. Um, right. But anyway, so that's disc one. Disc two, <laughs> uh, all of the uh, demos from Blackberry Way recorded in 1986. It's 20 tracks. It is killer. Yeah. It is totally killer. Yeah. Um, you're hearing embryonic versions of some really, really great tracks. A lot of them not heard before. And some really Tommy fiery, songs as well. Yeah, yeah, some Tommy songs. I mean, Awake Tonight. Whenever Bob and I first heard that song, we lost it. Because <laughs> it was like, you know, it's like a legit, like, road-worn faces yeah. song. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. it sounds amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and it really is kind of a what-if moment. Yeah. Uh, if, you know, those songs had been had more likes to them. Uh, and we're maybe taken into the studio. And then disc three, you have the rough mix on CD, plus all of the uh, studio outtakes from the Please Meet Me session. So you have stuff that's come out previously on the All for Nothing compilation, like Birthday Gal, Till We're Nude, and Beer for Breakfast, plus some completely unreleased uh, songs like Run for the Country, Learn How to Fail, a great Tommy song, Trouble on the Way, um that you know we were able to really put together a really nice mix and it sounds awesome so there's all that that's just the box set <laughs> plus all the bundle stuff is um t-shirt uh promotional placemat they did a promotional placemat for uh please meet me whenever it first came out uh, we've reproduced that for this oh, box because they're the mats. Um, because they're the mats. Yeah, because they're the mats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah got, it. Uh, got that. Plus, one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> plus a tote bag, uh, iron-on patch. Uh, there's also a cassette that is inclusive of an hour-long interview uh, that was originally released in bits and pieces as a promotional uh, 12-inch single. Uh, whenever the album originally came out, but this is like a full hour long conversation uh, where Paul goes into detail about the recording of Please to Meet Me and, you know, a kind of a track by track detail of oh, wow. the songs on Please to Meet Me. And it's really, really fun. And you can either get it in red or blue cassette. Take your pick. We give, we give uh, you a choice. Okay. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, and then. Um, what else is there? Bumper sticker? Because you want to, you want to, I want everyone to show yeah, how yeah, much yeah. they care. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Get it on your it's, car. It's one of the things that I, I, I think we're most excited about, both of us. This record has been come out as on, you know, the, the original album has been done in a couple of vinyl pressings over the last, you know, six, seven years. And, you know, blue colored vinyl, et cetera. And those are all from the 2008 remastering of the original album we were very lucky this time to remaster the original album kind of using jim dickinson's original instructions we consulted with his son luther who plays in the north mississippi all-stars because um there was always a feeling that at least the cd versions and the digital versions of this never quite sounded the way everybody remembered it in the studio and so we went with yeah. justin perkins who's our mastering guy who does all, all this great work and is, a, and is a fan himself and he really got it to sounding like you know, it would have been sounding like in 1986 coming out of the speakers at art oh, studios. Yeah. Just in terms it's of, never sounded better. Oh, yeah. So I, it's, a, yeah, it's never sounded it's, better. 
Yeah, so it's not quite featured, you know, on the vinyl because we put that out. And so we put the alternate mixes on the vinyl. But, you know, I think for folks who get this to, to be able to hear that record kind of as good as it's ever sounded, um, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of a treat as well. Well, so. I have the uh, because I'm a weasel. I got the MP3s at least in advance. And even <laughs> even those sound great. And uh, so, I mean, even because they're MP3s. Sorry, I didn't. Was that a backhanded? Sounds great, guys. Sounds great. They're just little, they're MP3s, so they're only going to sound so good. But I noticed the difference for sure. Uh, we yeah. are, ta- we've been talking about this record, and we're obviously missing some people that might have some insights here. Uh, Bob or Jason, I'm not sure which one of you might be in uh, the greatest uh, contact with either Tommy or Paul or Chris, who seems to have ghosted. Uh, what what is their relationship with this project? What is this? What is their relationship? Do you figure uh, with all this material at this point in their lives? I'm going to go to Bob first. I think benign indifference is the good uh, is the good way to put it. Um, well, no, obviously nothing happens in Replacements World without the sort of approval of the band, which for most intensive purposes is Paul and Tommy. Uh, and I talk to Tommy on a regular basis. Talk to Paul through his manager on a regular basis. And, you know, we started what we didn't know was going to be essentially a series three years ago with the release of Live uh, at Maxwell's 1986, which was a multi-track recording of the band, really kind of at the peak of during the Tim tour that had languished in the vaults for 30 years. There you go. And I just, so, I, for those listening, I just showed off my copy. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, we, we, we put that out just almost as a trial balloon to see, like, what is the audience for this kind of stuff? Well, what would the response be? And the response was, was pretty overwhelming and uh, positive. And, and so it allowed us to say, hey, well, you know, there's other stuff in the archive, other stuff in the vault that we want to do if the band wants to do it. And the next thing we did was Dead Man's Pop, which was kind of a, a, a reimagining of really the release of Don't Tell a Soul as the band had intended with its original mix and another live album from the era and so forth as a multi-disc box set, which was something to have that record sound the way the band had intended was always something I think the band wanted and something in particular Paul wanted. So we did that. Um, and with this one, you know, we we're, again, a great response. So we're sort of rolling you know, those, the replacements are not guys who generally look back uh, and they are probably not the best stewards of their own catalog or legacy. But I think in so much as they realize they're, they are an important band and important bands need to have their legacies and their catalogs tended to, they've basically given the green light to, to me and to uh, Jason here uh, to kind of do that on their behalf. And certainly Rhino is the company that owns uh, or controls the entire replacements catalog, including their Quinto stuff. It, it makes sense. It's all under one roof. Uh, there's a sort of cooperation in terms of that. And, and really, again, as I said, of any band you can think of, of the kind of importance of the replacements, they're probably the, the most under anthologized, under reissued under, you know, until we started to do it. And we're not trying to do this stuff willy nilly. We've managed to do several projects in a row here now, but all of them are basically creating new content and the way we look at it, and certainly the way we feel with Maxwell's no question that is a piece of their catalog, you know, in the main. I mean, they have never, they had a band for a band who was so recognized for their live shows and their performances to not have a live record out, you know, an official live record out uh, was was something we wanted to address. And so, you know, the response to that was so terrific that we just tried to do this uh, in a creative way. And, you know, as long as there's music out there and content out there in the archive that sort of validates this and stories within the, within the, their catalog that, that, that make this worth doing, I think we're going to do it. And, you know, so far the band has been cooperative in their own way. You know, it's not like Jimmy Page who's personally, you know, remixing everything and signing off on every mix, but, but, you know, they, they, you know, we can't do anything without the band wanting to do it so far. You know, they've been, uh, 
willing to in their own replacement C way. <laughs> well put, well put. So on that mm-hmm. note, a couple of questions. First, Jason, uh, what is sort of next in your, if you could do anything with the replacements catalog next, what would you want to work on? Let's put it in a way that uh, suggests that you don't admit that you were probably already working on something, uh, <laughs> but it gives you well. The- <laughs> let's see here. How can I? How can I say? I'll. Uh, there's there's two projects. Oh, there's three. Well, I'll I'll go over two. Uh, there's two that I would love to to see come to light at some point. One would be to remix Tim at some point. You know, I think that that has been something that, you know, I everyone loves that record. But the biggest gripe about that record is the way that it sounds. Some people think that it sounds great. A lot of people think it sounds like it could be improved upon. I want to at least have the opportunity to see if we can improve upon it. Um, as Bob said, you know, there's not a lot of additional material from that time period. So that kind of makes a, you know, a huge expansive box set, you know, more difficult. For Tim, so that's for something Tim that, for, just for Tim, you're for, talking about, yeah, 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 just for Tim. What do so people, that's something what do where, people, what do people complain about exactly? Because I listen to lots of records, and I, I'm, I kind of can discern when things sound good or sound not so good. Tim has never, I mean, uh, I guess in my most, in my mind, the most recent version is that 2008 reissue, I guess, which would have been remastered. Uh, well, you know, it's it's a funny thing. It's like the, the situation we had with uh, the Dead Man's Pop where we basically had Matt Wallace, who was the producer of the album, finish his mix that he had started back in 1988. Now, most people were very receptive to that, the overwhelming majority, because that record sounded different than replacement yeah. records. You know, people expected at the time it was very glossy. It was for radio. It had a lot of effects. Yeah. A lot of, as it turned out, a lot of things were dialed out of the record that were intended. And so that was really kind of fulfilling the band's creative thing. I think with Tim, um, you know, there was at the time and still is within the band and also within the fan base complaints that it doesn't sound as full or as powerful as the replacement sounded at the time. And the evidence of that, I think, is when you listen to Live at Maxwell's and you listen to some of the exactly. songs presented there. Right. Uh, and, and it may have been, again, a question of this is the first time they were working with a major label. They were had a, a, a producer in Tommy Ramone who's a great producer, but he was paired with someone who wasn't his normal engineer. Uh, yeah. And maybe there was some disconnect there. So that's one of those things that I think in the bigger scheme of things, you know, there's not a lot because the replacements for the most part, everything was cut and dried in terms of how they recorded and what they did. And, and they had, they're a band with very few regrets in, in that regard creatively. I mean, they for the most part put out the records they wanted to put out the way they did. The two kind of exceptions were the mix on don't tell a soul, which was kind of a compromise uh, on their part to try and sort of have some success of the band may continue, which yeah. didn't quite turn out that way. Yeah. Whereas with Tim, I think it's just a question of, well, it doesn't quite sound as powerful as they sounded at the time, yeah. which again is evidence on the Maxwell's thing. Is yeah. the and also and also the drum the drums I have I personally have a problem with the way the drums sound. I'm a, um, I'm a drummer. So, uh, I'm, you a, know, I'm a drummer. Are you a drummer? I am. Wow, we're drummers. Okay, yeah, I could <laughs> drummer complaint. I could so see that's that. Something, yeah, I could see. Yeah, that. Yeah, so that's something where I want to just see if there's okay. you know an opportunity for that. And all and another project would be. You know, we, sorry, Ma is 40 next year. You know, maybe yeah. we can try and do something with that. I think that, you know, the thing we really kind of take this piecemeal yeah. where, you know, yeah. we look at how well each one performs and then we decide, okay, what, what do we, 
do we have a do we have an opportunity to continue uh and if we're going to continue what do we want to do next and that's kind of a collective decision to, uh, between myself bob and you know all the other parties that are involved so nothing's in stone yet but you have some ideas of where you'd like to go yeah, yeah. there's always ideas yeah uh yeah, yeah. but that's that's kind of you know and also like you know all shook down that would be a great record to expand upon because there's a great collection of demos that paul recorded at that time that's what i was gonna get at are your ideas born of archival knowledge that you have that some of us don't like you you've obviously thought about these projects from the point of view of like i was going through the stuff for please to meet me and guess what i found for these other records right exactly yeah you know it's it's we're we're kind of you know there are certain records where there's not a wealth of material right so you have to get creative or you have to potentially look at you know what tapes someone might have or, you know, yeah, license yeah. in license, you know, stuff like that. That's, that's kind of where, where it all kind of comes together with something like, please meet me. We did have the good fortune of there was a lot of material in the vault that we could listen to and pull from. Yeah. Well, okay. Finally, I'm going to ask you for perspectives on a thing that you can't really speak to, but you might be able to a little bit. Some of us were very lucky to see a version of the replacements come back. What was it? Seven, six, seven years ago and play some shows. And that kind of stopped, I I think, dramatically on some level, as anything with the replacements. Every stop is somewhat strange (laughs) and dramatic. What is your perspective on that band's ability to function again in some way? Um, Bob, you talk to Tommy regularly. Let me let me talk. Let me ask you this: What do you think? Are we ever going to see the likes of them playing or doing something again? My answer to that is, is sort of the same as when prior to them reuniting in 2013. Is it never seems likely, and it's always kind of a long shot. But sort of predicting what Paul or Tommy might do or be willing to do at any given moment is sort of a fool's errand. Okay. Uh, I know even for those shows in 2013 where I had heard, you know, at that point they were getting offers to reunite every year, you know, for 10 years. And it looked like that there was no chance that was going to happen at all. And then at the last minute they decided, yeah, let's do it. So, and, and, you know, they, then they did it tours for, you know, two years on the festival circuit and then headlining shows. And then it fell apart just as abruptly. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it could, it could uh, start again or, or maybe that was it. But no, I think if, no, if it was, yeah, okay. if it was the last go round, it was pretty great. You know, I think universally sort of well-regarded uh, victory lap for them. So, okay. No rumblings of anything. Was everyone, was, it, <laughs> was everyone uh, on this call today at the Toronto show? Cause I was, I was, uh, I don't think Jason, were you there? I actually, <laughs> I never, I couldn't bring myself to go see the reunion shows. Because what? I loved them so much that I didn't want to be disappointed or have the opportunity to be disappointed. I lived in New York at the time, and I I had the ticket to Forest Hills. Oh, my God. You blew it. cart. I know. I totally blew it. And I – but, you know, it's one of those things where you love something so much that you don't want it to kind of crush the idea of what you have in your head. You know, because I've I've loved this band for so much for so long. You know, and now and knowing all the players involved, you know, I knew it was a knockout of the park. But I just I when faced with 
when faced with the, you know, decision to go or not to go, I decided to not. And I forever kick myself for that. So yeah, Jason was a Jason was a younger man there, Vish, and and, yeah. and he hadn't quite realized, you know, he was he was still dogmatic and thinking these things. But now, you know, I was an older man. I knew I don't care. I'm going to go see it, whether it's good, good yeah. bad, or indifferent. And it as it turned out, it was pretty great. And Forest Hills might have been the, the best show. Oh, dude, whole. I know, I know, and that's the thing that kills me because and and just just for a little bit of background, like I had I had seen some, certain acts previously that you know I placed on a pedestal in my mind and had been completely disappointed. It's and fun, it's, so there was yeah. kind of proof, there was kind of like proof of don't hold something that high because they're, they're people just like everyone else. They can have an off night, but it's, it was something where just, uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to disparage you for this decision because the replacements are an odd entity in the, in this regard because i in that they, it's not the original lineup that we all saw uh and i yeah. do i do firmly believe in in band chemistry so, and i will say that the bands that i used to see in the 90s that came back in the late 2000s when that was popular or, or rather the early part of the 2000s when it was popular to unite i thought they were better i think as people you're a bit more yeah. relaxed your psychology you're at ease with each other a bit because you you got all that angst out of your system, so you get along better, and that translates into that band chemistry thing. So, yeah, I can see that. I, the whole, you know, never meet your heroes uh, philosophy yeah. that you're employing for seeing a version of the replacements play. But to Bob's point, uh, the Toronto show I saw was wonderful, and I'm very glad yeah. I went. And I ta- I've talked to other people who are replacements fans. They say the exact same thing as you. I couldn't yeah. bring myself to go. I thought it would be a disaster. You know the band, like you know the band's history more than. Yeah. For those of us who never got, well, it, you know well, what I mean? Yeah. Which is which is hilarious considering what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? Yeah. No. So it's yeah. like so it's like I kind of you know like that that like karmic element. You know, like I'm being repaid in like different in different ways. Well, let me ask, let me ask you this, and you don't have to spill too many beans, but were were any of those show, shows captured properly? Recorded? Uh, yes, they were, but I don't think the release of those is imminent. <laughs> I love yeah. I love speaking in code about the replacements. This is fun. <laughs> no, I mean I think you know they they did professionally record because I know my friend Rick Fuller was kind of led the crew that that shot them. They shot the first three: uh, the uh, Toronto, um, Chicago, and um, Denver too, I believe. And and Minneapolis and their their headlining show in Minneapolis. So there's four shows that they did record. Um, I think, you know, probably the one thing you can take, the fact that those haven't been released means that maybe they might tour again someday because they don't want to sort of, yeah, you know, spill the beans. Paul, Paul is very. Yeah. Paul is very particular about sort of preserving the mystery. And so I think that's some of it. But at the same time, obviously, the, the powers that be thought, well, this is a historical thing. Let's record it for posterity. So who knows? At some point it, it, it may come out. But uh but uh, but yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath for that. But don't hold your breath yeah. for anything, you know, too long. Yeah, so. yeah. Jason, have you seen or heard any of these professionally recorded uh, reunion tour shows? Yes. Okay, yes. so now, that's why you're so angry. You actually <laughs> well, were like, and, oh. well, and also, well, well, and also, I, you know, I had friends who went to the Forest Hill show. I've seen, I've watched yeah. stuff on YouTube. You know, I know. 
I know what it was. Yeah. And I know that that was, that was one of the shows. I should have gone. I should have gone. Toronto, you missed you a know? pretty kick-ass Stooges and Rocket yeah. from the Crypt show as well. Those are all. That was a great yeah. day. I and, and Dinosaur Junior oh, played. Man. That was a great. Yeah, I, I had a really good time. I will say. See, I, I'm I'm <laughs> from I'm from the south. I'm actually from Tennessee. Oh. And whenever I, you know, in the early 2000s, late 90s, and stuff, whenever I was in high school and in college, and you know, trying to you know, seek out uh, additional culture to like just go see shows and stuff like that. Like the Stooges never came to the South. Right. So it's like, I could never see those reunion shows. So it's kind of like whenever I moved to New York, I had the ability to go see some of those bands because everyone comes through there. Also, I have the good fortune of this living in LA Mm -hmm, where, you know, everyone's going to come through uh, whenever live music comes back uh but but yeah no should have gone man <laughs> all right all right let's i think we've beaten jason up enough and uh <laughs> about this uh no i i really appreciate this conversation um let me give you this opportunity if either of you has anything else you want to say i'm going to ask uh jason probably uh to tell us uh those listening where they can learn more about uh, uh the set um and, and the the reissue generally but uh just final uh thoughts about either please to meet me or Bob, if you want to also share anything you're working on next, I'd love to hear that. So let's go to Bob. Bob, final thoughts well, actually, and what's next? Sure. Well, actually, as we are recording this, I received my physical copy of the box set, which I had not seen. Oh, dude, oh. right on. Wow. Uh, so it's very exciting for me. And, you know, the thing I've kind of taken away looking at it, how beautiful the package is in terms of both how it's been designed by Mike Joyce at Stereotype in New York is in thinking just this kind of by accident, as I say, we started this in 2017 thinking it was a one-off and we'd be lucky if we got to do another one and not knowing. And we've sort of developed this into a, a series. And as Jason and I say, we sort of think of it along the lines of, of, of the Dylan bootleg series where it's not chronological or necessarily in order, but sort of jumping around from different interesting periods, uh, you know, for a band that had 12 years, I mean, as much as you can sort of jump around in there. Uh, but one of the things I'm really excited about is just people to actually hear this, you know, the replacements fans are very dogmatic and, and, and I think we have proven over the last couple of releases that, you know, if you're going to buy something that we put together, it's going to be worth checking out and that the band yeah. has, has okay. And, you know, we, we've been very lucky. The guy who does all our mixing is a guy named Brian Key, who is produced for Yona Apple, who works for the who he's like one of the top remix guys, you know, in terms of, uh, and, and sound guys, he wrote, he literally wrote the book on the Beatles equipment. I mean, it's like to have somebody like that at our disposal to sort of work on this stuff. Same thing with Justin um, Perkins uh, for mystery room mastering, who did all this stuff. And then again, our designers and we have, you know, and I'm very fortunate to work with Jason on all this stuff uh, and, and the band and its management. It's like, it really is kind of like, uh, I'm not someone who gets sort of overly proud. I'm always self-critical of the things, but, but even though we didn't plan it this way, this is going to make a really very cool uh, series of, 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 of releases and sets and archival stuff. And just with some really high level people behind it that we're very lucky and that the band frankly is very lucky to have, because, you know, this isn't Led Zeppelin, but what we try and put as much care and thought and, you know, detail and, and love into, into this as, 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 you know, your, your Led Zeppelin reissues and your Beatles reissues. So hopefully people appreciate that and, yeah, that's that's about all I wanted to say. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. And in terms of uh, your own future work, is there anything you're working on that you want to talk about? Just uh, I'm working on my golf game because I can't play basketball anymore. 
because of the pandemic here in this country. But uh, no, I'm working on, I'm trying to figure out another book topic, but you know, I've sort of been stuck in replacements world for an extended period between the book and then the paperback. And then, uh, you know, obviously these, these various projects and there's been some interest in sort of, uh, you know, developing the book into something as a, you know, an adaptation theatrically or cinematically or television. So, you know, so I'm still kind of, you know, just when I thought I was out, I keep getting pulled back into replacements <laughs> world. But, uh, but you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sad about it because you know I, I've had time over the last few years to think about a follow up book and look at different topics and subjects and even have some discussions with people. And really, there are very few stories uh, that I am as passionate about or bands whose music I'm passionate about and whose story has so many layers and angles and 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 pockets that you could just sort of get lost in. So. So I'm very happy to still be kind of uh, dealing with this stuff, and, and until until I'm sick of it, then I'll be sick. <laughs> well, you are clearly the godfather of the replacements, so it's uh, nice to talk no. to you about that. And and Jason, uh, what about so two things, Jason? Anything you want to talk yeah. about in terms of Rhino World or or anything you're working on? And two, uh, can you direct uh, people to uh, to get more information about the Please to uh, Meet Me reissue? Sure. Well, one thing that just got announced yesterday is uh the uh grateful dead's american beauty angel share uh collection it's a collection of outtakes from american beauty in celebration of its 50th anniversary I had the good fortune of actually working with brian k hugh oh, cool. on that collection so we released some demos at the beginning of october and yeah. the full yeah. 56 track uh comp comes out uh, mid-October. Sweet. So that's something that's very I'm very, very proud of. Um, as far as where people can learn more information about uh, Please Meet Me, you can go to rhino.com. You can see all the bundles that I uh, discussed. And, oh, and also, I just want to point out that independent record stores, if you get Please to Meet Me, this uh, new deluxe box set out October 9th, at an independent record store are participating independent record store you will get a hand buzzer uh we kind of riffed off of the uh original the handshake uh, 87 yeah the handshake handshake, so you know we wanted to do something special just for independent record stores because independent record stores are the bread and butter of kind of what helped a band like the replacements get to um the level that they're at so you know you got you have a, a an entire suite of uh, <laughs> options, uh, you know, that you can get this great box set from. Okay. And it's, you know, as, uh, yeah, it's great. And I think that I everyone think will be, <laughs> I think everyone will be really, really, really surprised. Yeah. Vish, I'll by, tell you, it's a lot, it's yeah. a lot better to be able to, when something is actually great to come out here and hustle it and say, it's great. It's much, much, I'm much more confident doing that when I actually know it's great than, than, uh, when it's terrible. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll, yeah. but I'm by the same token, I have the freedom to cover whatever I want and I wouldn't be talking to you guys if this thing was a piece of garbage. So, uh, <laughs> it, it, well, it, is, it is really, really yeah. wonderful. Again, uh, Go to rhino.com and bundle, bundle up, as uh, the saying goes. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is sort of weird because you guys aren't in the band, but I usually go out on a song. I usually ask people, uh-huh. uh, do you think, I don't know who here can say, and let's all get in trouble together. Why not? Would it be permissible to go out on a song from this uh, box set? Jason, I'm going to go to you. You're the label guy. What do you think? <laughs> is there something we can go out on? And if so, do you want to pick it? Yeah, why not? I would go with uh, 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 let's see here <laughs> go with the demo of iou okay 
Why did that come to mind? Because that sounds awesome. And it also <laughs> kind of, it, it gives you kind of a peek. You know, if you know and love this record, it's track one, side one. And yeah. it kind of shows you the alternate storytelling and uh, an alternate peek into the making of the record that, you know, we kind of wanted to display within the box set. So my pick would be the demo of IOU. Okay, Bob, you okay with that? Yeah, no, I agree. That's a that's a good choice. I like it too because it harkens back to our painful conversation about Jason missing Iggy and the Stooges <laughs> and the replacements. Exactly. Got a little bit of an Iggy illusion. Oh yeah, yeah. Dude, totally, totally, hundred <laughs> percent. This is the demo of IOU from the wondrous album "Please to Meet Me" by the Replacements. Uh, Jason Jones, Bob Mara, thank you so much for making time for me and for talking about the Replacements. And I wish you both the best of luck with everything going forward. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Very special thanks to Bob Mayer and Jason Jones for uh, going on this deep dive into the replacements and their uh, excellent album, Pleased to Meet Me, on this, the 569th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all Apple and Google platforms and other things as well. Spotify, There's uh, some of the episodes are up on uh, YouTube. It's all over the place. Find it, or it may find you somehow, I guess. I don't know how that would work exactly. It's not like some kind of thing that searches out people, but still, you can find it. It's called Creative Control. If you can't find an episode that you're actually looking for, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my semi-regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can also uh, like Creative Control on Facebook or follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative or follow me directly at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation uh, to sustain this podcast's existence. Uh, please, $6 or more gets you exclusive content. So if, if you're not getting enough from the show itself and you want a little bit extra $6 or more at Patreon gets you more stuff uh, otherwise you're just supporting the show you're saying good job Vish if it wasn't for you I don't know what I would do with myself and my ears and my brain you are filling them all with great stuff and I'd like to give you a little small token of my appreciation every month uh, maybe I'll give you $2 a month $3 $4 it could be $5 it could be $6 it could be 7 could be nine. I skipped some numbers there, but you know what I mean. It could be anything you want, and then you can change it if you don't like what you're doing. You can change it. You can. Most people go up. I will say, I I really appreciate that. Most people, when they adjust, they go up. I don't know how they do it, but it's great, and I appreciate it again. Patreon.com/slash/creativecontrol. If you too would like to support the show, thanks again to live at MasseyHall.com, where you can watch beautifully captured concerts by great Canadian artists. They support the show. Also, for their in-kind support of the show, Pizza Trocadero. The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. Oh, my friend Jim Guthrie. He lets me use some music uh, for the show. You can learn more about Jim and his great work at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode uh, with uh, Bob Mayer and Jason Jones. In case you're interested, Bob was on uh, the show uh, in uh, 2016. I believe it was episode... 262 that we talked about the replacements and became replacements friends uh, his book Trouble Boys is still one of my favorite uh, rock and roll books uh, so if you haven't read it yet check that out and yeah thanks for listening to this episode thanks for listening to up to this point even and I hope you will uh, subscribe and follow the show and tell your friends to do the same things 
so you can keep tabs on Creative Control. I must leave you now. I will talk to you soon. Thanks again. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.